0: Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversales.com. Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 through 34 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you're thinking, that that's not a Christmas passage... You're right. It's not a normal Christmas passage. Uh, but I was reminded uh, this week that every passage in the Bible, you can take to either the cross or to the birth of Jesus. Because every passage that talks about him has a purpose for coming and his purpose for dying. And so even though this may not be the traditional Christmas passage, I think that we're going to see a lot about the reasons why Christ came to the earth this morning. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, one of the scribes approached when he had heard them debating and he saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, what command is the most important of all? Then Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. God, you are incredibly merciful to us. We see it in how you sent your, your son. We see it in how you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach to us repentance and belief and to prepare for us the way of salvation. We ask that you give us the grace that we need to follow their warnings and to forsake our own sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Does the name John Wesley mean anything to you? Some, I see some head nods. I see some... Yeah, a little like that. Okay, good. You, sure, you surely know his brother, Charles. Charles wrote two songs that we sing during this season of the year. He, he wrote, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And he also wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and about 6,000 plus other hymns. He, he was an avid hymn writer. But John, the older brother, he had a brilliant mind. A brilliant mind. By the age of 23, he was a double professor of Greek and philosophy, and he would give lectures regularly on the New Testament. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England at the age of 25, just two years later. And while he was teaching at Oxford, he joined a group led by his brother Charles, which included the soon-to-be great evangelist, George Whitfield. Their group was dedicated to living a holy life. And so the other, I don't know, Oxfordians, whatever, I don't know what they call them, Oxians, I don't know, whatever, whatever the people at Oxford are called, they named that group the holy club and that's what they started calling themselves the holy club dedicated themselves to fasting twice a week they set times each day aside for prayer and studying the greek new testament they attended communion services and practiced many other devotional exercises personally john he set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection He set up certain disciplines in his life so that he could conquer sin. Each week he would go and visit the prisons. He would assist the poor and he would comfort the sick. With all that he was doing, you'd look at his life and you'd think, man, that guy is a serious Christian. He takes his faith so seriously and that's what he thought too. But his personal journals tell us the rest of the story. And even though he was... Teaching the New Testament and and he was teaching Greek and he was an ordained minister, he was not yet converted. He remained unsaved, even with all of that stuff that he was doing in his life. In 1735, at the age of 32, John accepted an invitation from the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel and he became a missionary to the Indians in Georgia, the state here in the United States. And he would write in his journal that that mission went terribly. He, he felt like he had utterly failed. There was constant arguing and conflict with his fellow workers. He nearly died of a disease. And reflecting on that trip, he would later write, I went to Ameri- America to convert the Indians, but oh, Who shall convert me? He recognized that he was lost. His experience taught him about the wickedness and the waywardness of his own heart. So on his way back on the ship, he met this group of Moravian Christians from Germany. And in the middle of the storm, when everyone else was panicking, the Moravians simply prayed and sang soft hymns to the Lord. And he found their simple faith Mesmerizing. It made a huge impact on him because he saw where his heart was and he saw where theirs was and he realized it wasn't in the same place. So when he landed in London, he found a fellowship of Moravians in that city. And after several conversations, Wesley was, in his own words, clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of faith whereby alone we are saved. He said, I didn't have faith. I didn't have saving faith. He had done all those things, set aside all that time, fasted twice a week. He went to the communion service. He, he visited the poor and in prison and, and helped those who were sick. He studied and prayed and taught and preached. He was a missionary. And yet it was then and then alone on the morning of May the 24th, 1738, that something happened to him that he would never forget. He flipped his Bible open and his eyes fell on Mark chapter 12, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. That day, 13 years after becoming a professor of the New Testament, 11 years after being ordained as a priest in the Church of England, and three years after going on an overseas mission trip, John Wesley was saved. That verse became a life verse for him, a reminder of the first 35 years on earth that he was close, but not in the kingdom. And a person can be close, but not in the kingdom. They can have a lot of great outward expression in their life, but no inward change. And that's what we find in our text today. A man like Wesley. In this passage, Jesus is talking to a scribe. And the scribes were the religious lawyers, the clergymen of Israel. And this man was lost. He was like Wesley, highly educated, a Bible scholar, knew the Scriptures inside and out. And both of them were confronted with the words of Jesus, You are not far from the kingdom of God. It's a question that should cause us to pause and reflect on our own lives this morning. Maybe this describes you today, close, but not close enough. For the fourth time in our passage, for the fourth time, Jesus is confronted with another challenging question. This time it's from a scribe, a religious lawyer. And he had overheard Jesus' conversation with the Sanhedrin back in chapter 11, verse 27, when they were like, who gave you the authority to do this? Who said said you could do that? And Jesus says, well, the same person that told John the Baptist that he could do what he was doing. Well, they didn't like that because it was God, right? God gave them the authority. Well, then comes the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they pry him about paying taxes to Caesar, thinking they'll get him in a political you know get him caught in a political argument and he'll lose a following but Jesus avoids their snare as well and then in the text just before this one in chapter 12 verse 18 we see that that Jesus is dealing with the sadducees on the question of the resurrection of the dead and it tells us that the scribe had been listening to Jesus in these interactions and he was impressed Verse 28 says, because Jesus answered them well. But the scribe's question is different than all of the previous questions. You see, the first three questions, they were designed to try and trip up Jesus, to put him at odds with one group or another, so that there would be contention in his ministry and it would all fall apart. Or maybe they could just go ahead and arrest him and kill him and be done with him altogether. But this question was different. Jesus dodges those traps and and in the wake of that teaches us how to relate to God and our world in a right way. But I think that this question from this particular scribe, I think it's a genuine question. I think he really wants to know. He wants to get to the truth because he recognizes the wisdom and the authority of Jesus. And so he asks a question and this is a question that most of the religious leaders had kicked around for hundreds of years and it finally came back up here to Jesus. And they're like, well, he's, he's a sharp guy. You know, he, he fooled all those knuckleheads. Maybe he can come up with a good answer for this one. And the question was, which command is the most important of all? Which command is the most important of all? Which is the greatest commandment? It wasn't a question about which commands should be obeyed and which commands can be ignored. It was really a question about What's the command that all the other commands, hang on, what's the hook? You know, what's that one command that we definitely need to make sure that we're paying attention to? And it was not an easy question because, like I said, they'd been debating it for a long time and there was a lot of answers out there. You see, the scribes, they'd come up with 613 separate commandments from the Old Testament. 365 of them were negative commands. Don't. 248 of them were positive commands. Do. And they divided those into two more groups heavy and light. Light commands were less demanding, and they carried a more mild punishment if you were to break them. But the heavy commands, they made greater demands on your life, and they carried a severe punishment for breaking them. David took those 613 commands, and in Psalm 15, he reduced them to 11. And then Isaiah decreased them to 6 in Isaiah 33, 15. And then Micah narrowed them down to 3 in Micah 6, 8. Well, there was a famous rabbi uh, of this time frame when Jesus was there. He he may have just passed away um, because we don't know the exact date of his death. But he was challenged with a similar question. A Gentile came up to him and said, he said, I'll convert if you can stand on one foot and recite the law. 613 laws, right? If you can stand on one foot and recite the law, I'll convert. And so Hillel was also wise and he stood on one foot and said, What is hateful to you, do not, do to, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole law, the rest is commentary. And then he put his foot down. That was his answer. What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. He focused on treating other people with kindness, which is good, and we should be kind to other people. But he's missing something very important, a huge element. So how would Jesus respond? Which one is the most important command? Jesus' response is also quick. It's also to the point. He says, The most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now this command is actually a quote from one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it's known as the Shema. And Shema is a Hebrew word, and it simply means hear or listen. And it's the first word of this passage. Hear, listen, O Israel. And it was memorized and recited every day, morning and night, by faithful Jewish people. In fact, they still teach it today. They still use it today in their worship services. The Shema was as important to the faithful Jewish people as the Lord's Prayer is to Christians. William Barclay is a Scottish minister, and he wrote about this command to love, and and he was a good pastor who had all of his points start with the same letter. They all start with the letter D. He said of this love, It's a love which dominates our emotion. It directs our thoughts, and it's the dynamic of our action. What he's saying is that this isn't just some warm, fuzzy feeling that we have. It is a total devotion to God. And just after the Shema, if you go and read that in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the next few verses, verses 6 through 9, they command that, they're, that this is supposed to be taught to the children. And to talk about it all the time, everywhere they go, sitting down, laying down rising up, walking out, in the home, in the street, everywhere you go, teach them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love Him with all your heart, soul, and strength. They were even to bind them onto their hands. And they had this thing called the mezuzah, and they would put it on their doorpost as a reminder as they walked in and out that they were to love the Lord It was a constant reminder, a constant reminder that, that their love for God would be a driving factor, the driving factor for everything else that they did. It wasn't like they could say, well, you know, I just obeyed the greatest commandment, but, you know, I don't worry much about the other nine. For a person to say that they are 100% committed to God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means they're also committed to God and what he says about lying, and stealing and faithfulness to, the, to your spouse about coveting and all the rest, murder and all, the, all of them. The first one helps get our heart in the right direction, but the rest are how we show that our heart is in the right place. To love God is to obey His commandments. The first commandment contains the rest. Now it's important to note all of the alls in this verse. There are four of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That seems to fall into the heavy category in my mind. It's very demanding. Everything. All that you are. All a person is. All of you loving all of God. Jesus isn't calling for us to have some shallow interest in God. Not a a passing Sunday afternoon drive kind of interest in God. He doesn't say, oh, you can just give this small part of your life to God. Just come for an hour or two on Sunday morning and all will be right in your life. No, that's not at all what he says. Instead, he piles up the terms. Heart. Soul. Soul mind, strength, all of it, all of who you are. That's everything that we are. If you can point to something that makes up a person that doesn't fit into that category, you're, you're smart because I couldn't figure out one. That's, that's all of us. That's everything that we are. And Jesus is calling for everything that we are to love and live for God completely. If we slice our lives up into different fragments and only give some of them to God, we will suffer from a kind of religious or spiritual schizophrenia. Those who try and straddle the fence with God and the world, they only usually end up in a lot of pain, doomed to be frustrated in this life and just plain doomed in the life to come. With God, it's all or nothing. One pastor I I was reading this week reminded me that love cannot be tithed like money. Not many of us, not many people in the world can sing, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. But that's what God requires. He requires all and nothing less. You know, God gives Himself totally... In love for his people. And he expects his people to give themselves totally in love to him. Kent Hughes, another pastor and commentary writer, said it this way. It doesn't take much of a man to be a believer. But it takes all there is of him. Every part. Our devotion to God is all of our life for all. Of our life. It's all of our life for all of our life. It takes all we are for as long as we live. Now we don't have time to go into it into detail this morning, but I will remind you that marriage was actually given to us by God to reveal to us the profound mystery of the love that Christ shows the church. A, sacrifice, a sacrificing love. He gave himself up for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Talk about that. You can go read about it later. But he says, he's talking about marriage, but then he says, no, I'm really describing the mystery of Christ in the church. It's an incredible passage. What's the last thing that the minister asks the couple that is to be married? You know, after the for better, for worse, for richer and poorer and sickness and in health, but he doesn't tell you that it's going to be worse poor and sick most of the time, right? But after all of that, what's the last thing that he asks that couple to commit to do? That they will do it for a month? For a year? A decade? No, what does he say? For as long as you both shall live. Right. That's our whole life, right? That's not a shallow commitment. That's all of your life for all of your life. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this text and he, he compiled a great list of um, spiritual habits, kind of like the list that John Wesley had, that impressive list that we'd go, oh man, whew, that's nice. And then he said this, he said, ah, my friend, and you may do all of that without loving God. We can do our duty, but God wants it to be a delight. Charles Spurgeon will go on to say that many people who proclaim a love for God are really looking for loopholes through which they can escape. One more quick reminder before we move on. We don't do things for God to get him to love us more. God already loves us as much as He possibly can because God doesn't love half-heartedly. He loves us completely. I am loved deeply and completely by God, so I do what He says. We cannot lose sight of that fact. We don't love Him to get Him to love us. 1 John 4.10 actually tells us that The opposite of that is true. That love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So He loved us. And His great love that He extended toward us causes us to love Him. There was nothing that we did in order to deserve God's love in the first place. So He loves us completely. We don't do things to be loved by God. We are loved by God And so we respond to that great love that is already there. We need to make sure that we don't get that backwards. So many people in our world are trying to earn the favor of God. You can't. You can't. I'm going to talk about more in a minute, but you can't do it. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000, he always gives more than we ask for. There were 12 baskets full After that, and Jesus says, here's the most important command, but let me give you a second one too. It's connected. The scribe only asked for one, but Jesus tells him that the way that we live out the first command will determine how we live out the second command. That if we love God above all else, we will show it by loving our neighbor. Then when we obey that second command, it gives proof that we have taken hold and taken seriously the first command to love God with all of our heart." Loving God and each other are two sides of the same coin. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a one-sided coin. Every coin I've ever held has two sides to it. And so this coin of the greatest command also has two sides. Love God, number one. And then we show that love by how we treat other people. And this is the point of the sermon, right, on this text, where I'm supposed to say now you'll see that this verse says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And that means that you have to love yourself first. And so when you get a good, healthy self-love and you get that right in your life, then you can go and love your neighbor appropriately. Which is baloney. I was taught that my whole life. It's, not what this text is teaching at all. I think, no, I know, that if you're like me, you don't suffer from a lack of self-love. In fact, you probably, like me, have the opposite problem. You love yourself way too much. The biggest problem that I have is that I love myself too much. I'm always looking out for what's best for me. And if it's not best for other people, I'm okay with that. I look at how I can get the best deal in an exchange. If there's one piece of cake left and you cut it in half and one looks just a little bit bigger, I'm going to figure out a way to get that bigger piece of cake. All right. We'll fight it out later. (laughs) I want to know how I can put the least amount of effort in and get back the maximum result from other people self love is not your problem selfishness that's the problem we love ourselves way too much but we use this verse as an excuse not to love other people because we say oh well i'm not too keen on myself you know i don't no you you really are if you look at it and think about it So Jesus takes Leviticus 19 verse 18 and he puts it right alongside Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he says that growing out of our love for God, we ought to love our neighbors. Why? Why? Why do we have to love our neighbors? Some of them are hard to love. Well, we love our neighbors. And by the way, Jesus tells us, explains to us who our neighbor is In a parable called the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And he says that our neighbor is anyone that we find in need. That really opens the floodgate, doesn't it? But we love our neighbor because they are made in the image of God and they are a person for whom Christ has died. We don't love them because they're lovely people. In fact, some of the people that we encounter are not very lovable at all. The image of God has been deformed in their life because of sin. We look at people and we see and we look at their life and we see that they are so far away from the purpose and plan of God. They're angry people mentally unstable, they're needy, dirty, scary, and probably very, very difficult. What do you do when you encounter people like this in your life? Do you ignore them? They don't exist. They don't exist. Do you dismiss them? Oh, there's nothing I can do. You just, you know, you're going to have to go find them somewhere else. Do you try and pass by them? like they did in the Good Samaritan parable? Or do you think to yourself, you know, if they just tried a little bit harder, it'd probably be all right. They just tried. Tried harder. But what does Jesus do with them? Jesus loved them. He helped them. He lifted them up out of the mess that they found themselves in. He gave whatever it took in order to reach them. He looked past their rough and dirty exteriors and looked at them the way that we should look at them, as a person who is created in the image of God for whom Christ has died. They're us. They need the grace of God to change them. You see, loving God, I think, is actually probably the easier one of the two of these. Loving our neighbors, that's going to take everything we've got. That's why we have to love God with everything we've got, because we won't be able to love our neighbor unless we've got all of ourself in God first. And so we fill our life with the love of God so that it will overflow into the lives of the people that are around us. And that's why this first commandment is so vital, because we will never love others as much as we love ourselves unless we first love God and He And he gives us the humility that we need to put other people's needs first. You know, Jesus already has challenged his followers back in Mark chapter 8, saying, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. Jesus calls us to take that natural love that we have for ourselves and then turn it outward toward other people. And Paul summarizes it so well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And he says that, that this love for other people, this putting other people first in the verses just before that, it comes from our encouragement that we find in Christ. He says that it comes from our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so we give all of ourselves to God. All of ourselves to all of God for all of our life. And we're able to find this love that we never could have had. And so if I'm truly going to show my love for God, then the passion and the energy with which I try and meet my own needs, I must now... Try and help meet the needs of others. When we love God, we will love others. Now, if you were to go back and look at Leviticus 19.8, which is where Jesus gets this love your neighbor as yourself line, and you kept reading that chapter, you would find out what it means to love your neighbor. Uh, I've got nine because that's all that would fit on a slide, and you could still read it. But there are many more. Go check it out, not now, later right? This is your assignment for this afternoon. Read Leviticus 19. But some of the ways he says is that we should care for the poor. Don't steal. Don't lie. Be fair in your business. Care for those with physical issues. Avoid slandering. Don't put your neighbor's life in danger. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Don't take revenge or bear a grudge against other people. These are just a few of the things that are in there. So we don't have to guess what God means. I don't have to go, oh, God says love your neighbor. What, I wonder what that looks like. There's some things to get us going. But love will take us beyond those things as well. We don't have to guess. And I think that Hillel's words ring true again here. What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. If you don't like it, they probably aren't going to like it either. Treat others the way you want to be treated? Isn't that the golden rule, right? Something like that? Yeah. Well, the scribe likes Jesus' answer. He liked it. And he affirmed what Jesus had said in his own way. He, he restated Jesus' statement. But where Jesus had said that there is no other command greater than these, the scribe substituted that there is no law that is more important Then all of the burnt, these laws are more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this is a big moment for the scribe because the sacrificial system was everything. That's how you were made right with God. But this scribe realized that none of the outward, you could do all the outward rituals that you wanted, but none of it meant anything if it didn't come from a heart that truly loved God above everything else. And our love for God will be stunted if it also doesn't echo through our lives to our neighbors. Even in the Old Testament, it points to this conclusion that Jesus found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Or what about Proverbs 21.3? doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Or what about Hosea chapter 6, verse 6? For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. God says, love, love me with everything. Sacrifices is good, but they mean nothing without a deep desire and a deep love for God and Him alone. Because ultimately it's not the sacrifice, it wasn't the the pigeon or the lamb or the bull or the goat that cleansed their sins. It was God. That was a symbol of the sacrifice to come of Christ. But their hope was in God. Love God, love others. Not only did the scribe like Jesus' answer, Jesus in turn liked the scribe's response. He liked his answer. And in verse 34 it says, When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus mean then by not far from the kingdom? It seems seems clear-ish to me. This man had built his whole life on carrying out all the rituals, following all the rules, making sure the letter of the law was kept. He did it all. Check, 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 check. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't tell him, hey, just try a little harder. There's one or two that you're still missing. And if you get those checked off, you'll make it in. That's not what he says. Because getting into the kingdom of God is not about working harder. It's about a change of heart. This man wanted to know which law to place all of his effort on, all of his energy, all of his resources. Which one do I need to keep in order to make it Jesus But really, he was missing one thing. You see, it's really easy for us to replace ritual and let it take the place of love in our life. Because ritual is spelled out exactly. Do this, do this, do this, and no more. That's the end of it. I did the three things I'm supposed to do, I'm done. But love, love takes everything you got. Love takes it all. It takes doing the things and then it takes more. You love extra. Not because it's your duty, but because it's your delight. It's kind of like in your, in your marriage. There's things you know that your spouse likes and things you know that they don't like. And so you don't do the things you know that they don't like, but then you try and do extra things for them that they haven't asked you to do, that they don't expect you to do because you love them. And you want to show that to them. You see, if it was just a duty, I could check off the list. Didn't do this, didn't do this, did this, did this, I'm good to go. But a relationship isn't like that. I mean, dysfunctional relationships maybe, but loving relationships aren't. They're about giving everything that we've got. Your love for God will be so deep and so filling that it will spill into everything else in your life. The fragrance of God's love will be all over you and others will be able to smell it on you and you'll smell good. Obeying the rules alone will never get you into the kingdom of God because you'll never be able to do enough to measure up to God's perfect standard. Instead, what you need is a whole new you. You need a new heart. You need the grace and the mercy of God who alone can make you a new creation in Christ. When Jesus began His ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, He proclaimed, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come near. And this man, he says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. There was still another step that he needed to take. He needed to repent and believe in Christ alone. Of all the questions that Jesus was asked, this scribe was the most honest and he got the most direct answer from Jesus. He was close, but he wasn't in. And maybe you're like him this morning. I'm sure that he thought that he was a pretty good person. I imagine that uh, that you like him think, well, you know, I love God. I do the best I can. I mean, I'm not all, 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 but I'm at least some, 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 you know. And I don't love all of my neighbors, but I'm, I really am trying with a few of them. But is that what this passage is calling us to do? In reality, this passage condemns us all because we'll never match up to its standard. We're nowhere close to it. We're not all, 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 all. We don't have it in us to be able to do that. But you see, here's where the Gospel comes to the rescue. While we cannot do this, the Gospel says, Jesus has done it. And He has kept the law perfectly. He has fulfilled it totally. Not only has He done this, but He also paid the penalty that we deserve because we haven't haven't kept the law perfectly. The same Jesus tells us to abandon all of our efforts to rule our own lives and all of our attempts to please God with our own human efforts because we can't do that. And instead he says, enter my kingdom, draw near to me, repent and believe. And that's what we must do. We must draw near to the one who has brought the kingdom of God near. Drawing near to Jesus. Not by religious ritual, but by a relationship. Not by checking off a list of duties, but by love. So what about you this morning? Are you close? But not in? You think you're good? You come to church? You surround yourself with Christians? You try and do good things? You know, it's really not the bad stuff that keeps us away from the kingdom of God. Because when we do the bad stuff... We re, I mean, it's easy to spot and we go, yeah, my heart's sinful and I need Jesus. <laughs> Those things make us run to him fast. It's the good things, I think, that kind of keep us away from the kingdom of God. Because we think, oh, I'm good enough. I don't need anything else. Let me tell you what, you'll never be good enough without Jesus. That was John Wesley's problem. He did all the right things. Was around all the right people, but he was far from Christ. Close, but not close enough. I hope we can get a better grip on this commandment of Jesus. Because maybe you're thinking this morning, you know, I've never really done anything against God. I've done a lot of good in things in God's name. But that's not the issue. Jesus doesn't say, well, have you done some good stuff for God? No, He says, love God with everything that you are. And that's the question this morning. Not does your good outweigh your bad, but do you love God supremely? Is He first in your life? Because God wants your heart. He'll get your actions. But he wants your heart. We're only days away from Christmas. We've been singing the carols about the story of Christ's first coming. We're going to read the Christmas story in just a few days on Christmas Eve right here as we light the Christ candle. But do you remember the message of the angels in Luke chapter 2? Don't be afraid. I proclaim to you good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Christ the Lord. And Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 was told to name him Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We couldn't do it on our own. In fact, we can't even love God like we ought to except for His help in our life. Don't stop short of the kingdom of God today. Call out to Jesus. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you of all of your sins. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.